All right. Well, good morning, everybody. If I haven't met you, my name is Nate. Uh, I get to help give leadership to things here with JT and my wife, Megan, who's not here, uh, and a number other of people who are uh, sitting in the seats with you all. And so uh, it's something we love doing. Um, and uh, I get to spend the best hours of my week uh, working with college students and helping them understand who Jesus is and grow in their faith. Uh, and so I love getting to come here on Sunday and uh, talk about God's word and uh, teach and preach and share with you guys just what God is doing. Uh, this morning we're going to continue on our series, Joshua, A Life of Influence. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but uh, my wife and I, a few years back in the pan- uh, right before the pandemic, we jumped on this craze uh, of the robot vacuum. All right? Uh, some of you might know it as DJ Roomba uh, or something along those lines, but Megan and I, uh, to know us is to know that we hate cleaning so much that we want to automate it. Okay? And apparently a lot of the world does too. And so, amen, right? It's like, and it's an early amen, but it's a worthy amen, right? <laughs> And so Megan and I take the plunge. We're like, I hate sweeping. You hate sweeping. Robots don't get to decide. They just do what they tell us. <laughs> so we started reading the reviews, and we're like, these reviews, they're really good. <laughs> this makes us do it even more. And so we already had our mind made up. We had read the reviews. We were influenced by them. And uh, we, we, we took the plunge, and we got the like shark one. It's supposed to be like super top of the line. And it was like, yes, we've arrived. We don't have to sweep our floors. But what the reviews didn't say anything about is owning a dog. And owning a dog who is tiny, a little skittish, kind of anxious, and accident prone. And DJ Roomba, our robot vacuum, would be sweeping around, and he would fill our hearts. But we would, one day we left, and our little dog, Ruby, was there with DJ Roomba. And Ruby, not quite trained yet, decides that the rug underneath our kitchen table would be a great place to gift us with a poop. <laughs> Robots don't detect poop. They smear it all over the place. And so Megan and I walk into our house into an absolute war zone. Like, poop everywhere. On our carpets, on our floors. We both were like, thank God we have hardwood. Like, this is going to take a while. Then we sat there and argued because we really don't like to clean. So now somebody's got to clean the poop. So now we were running into some serious issues because the robot that we had paid money for to do this job now created a bigger job than we had actually set out to achieve. So what do we do? We start scrubbing the robot. We realize that's not going to work. We have to throw away the robot. And so instead of saying, you know what, this isn't going to work because we have a dog. What do we do? We say, we're going to buy another robot. (laughs) We're committed to the process. We will overcome this. Ruby will get trained. We move to our new house. Our dog, doing so good, so well at potty training, does the same thing. 
And it's the same movie, but a different day, where we come home one day, and the dog has pooped again. And the vacuum was going. And our floors, again, chaos. And so Megan and I did what every uh, wise, uh, wise people would do when faced with a double poop emergency. Uh, we got online and we researched what robot vacuum we could buy that accounted for accidents. So now we are the proud owners of the Bissell Sweep and Mop Vacuum. Just going to do a moment's plug because it takes care of this. And this Bissell Sweep and Mop does the job. But also, Ruby is well-trained, and we haven't run into the problem again. So right now, our dog is well-trained, but we are also well-prepared. Now here's the thing. Megan and I, uh, we really, really, really didn't like cleaning, but we really, really trusted all these reviews, and we really, really believed that like, to get rid of this thing that we don't like to do in our lives, we could totally trust the robot vacuum. And the robot vacuum wouldn't let us down, and the, would not, the robot vacuum wouldn't lead us astray until Ruby and the robot vacuum met. And I'm sure that you guys are all sitting out there and you all have your own poop vacuums. Maybe you didn't, maybe it's not literal, but you all have something in your life that you probably put your trust in a little too much, uh, that you kind of went about like mindlessly trusting, and all of a sudden, uh, something came back and it was like, oh, that bit me good. <laughs> like, that got me really good. I, I'm going to pay for that. And the thing is, is uh, when we look at the story of Joshua, and you guys are probably like, how is he going to tie a poop vacuum to the story of Joshua? <laughs> Buckle up. We're going to do it. The reality is when we look at the story of Joshua, we look at a story of a man who puts his trust in a lot of things. And here's the thing. Uh, the thing that we need to know is that trust influences us. Like we, the things that we believe in shape us. And we commit ourselves to these things to the point that sometimes we go back to them over and over and over again. And sometimes we find them empty over and over and over again. And we have this, the human condition is to run and turn to things that actually don't give us what we need. Because the reality is, uh, all of us are looking for something to commit to. We want to, to solve the inner problems of the human imagination so desperately that we will buy three robot vacuums to do it, right? We, we are unbelievably committed to figuring out what we should give ourselves to. Where should we put our trust? What can we actually believe in? And oftentimes we find ourselves a lot like the people of Israel in the story of God. You see, the story of Joshua starts way before the book of Joshua uh, because he didn't just like come on the scene. It wasn't like, hey, Joshua's here. Now everything's going well. No, he was a part of the people of Israel while they were wandering in the desert, when they were facing hardship, where they were trying to figure out how do we trust this God who gave us a promise, and yet here we are wandering for 40 years. Was it worth it giving our lives to this? And you can read in the scriptures over and over and over again in the Old Testament where the people of Israel would come uh, to the leaders, Moses, Aaron, and eventually Joshua, and say, what have we done? Wasn't life so much better back in Egypt? Egypt. 
Didn't we have full bellies? Didn't we have everything we needed? Now we are just wandering around and it feels aimless and pointless. They weren't quite sure if giving their lives fully to what they had been freed from, from was worth it. And I think it brings about a big life question that we all are trying to answer. And that is who or what will we give our lives to? All of us are looking for direction and purpose. We all want to make sense of our life. We all want life to kind of fit in the puzzle pieces in the way it should. But most of us are like missing the piece in the middle that like gets lost on the floor or your kid takes and cruelly hides somewhere and so you can't actually finish the puzzle, right? Uh, we're all searching for that and we're stuck. And so what do we do? Sometimes we rearrange it. Maybe I missed something. We're digging all around, trying to find what should we actually give ourselves to? What can I trust? Why can I trust it? Is it worth it? Everyone asks this question directly or indirectly, no matter who you are. This is actually part of just what it means to be human. This is not what it means uh, specifically to be Christian. And so I think we can learn some things from the story of Joshua because the story of Joshua is one that is shaped by the idea of, of trust. In it, we find a character who has fully given his life to seeing his people experience God's fulfilled promises because he trusted who God was and he was unwavering in the trust. But you see, it didn't happen overnight. It happened over a lifetime. And so what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to do a survey of Joshua's life. You know, I know, most of the time when we're up here, we do kind of a chunk of scripture and we unpack that chunk of scripture and talk about it. But what we're going to do is actually a brief kind of survey of Joshua's life today. We're going we're gonna to run from Joshua 4 and, and kind of numbers, uh, Joshua 4, Joshua 8, Joshua 23, and then we're going to go into the New Testament. Uh, and so just to give you guys a little survey of kind of where we're going. But we're going to do this just by kind of drawing out three simple points about Joshua and his life. And I want to give a little precursor to the book of Joshua, because the book of Joshua, if you read it, is actually pretty gnarly. Uh, like, it is not one of those, like, everybody reads and they're like, be strong and courageous. And you're like, yeah, be strong and courageous. Do it like Joshua did. And then you hear that he, like, killed 31 kings and then, like, put their heads on a spear and, like, paraded them around a city, like, left them at the front of the gate and then, like, piled rubble on top of them. And you're like, maybe not like that. So the story of Joshua is one where Joshua doesn't face a lot of hardship. Like the book of Joshua is literally like him going around and he's just taking names. And he's doing it all in the name of God who has given him, uh, has given the people the promise that they will go into the land that God promised them with Joshua. And so Joshua is leading them and the people are following him. And it seems like everything is going right. Like pretty much everything Joshua touches, like the city crumbles. Like Jericho, everybody knows about the, uh, if, you, if you've been around the church long enough, you know about Jericho. Like God tells Joshua, hey, go, go march around that wall seven times. Blow some trumpets. It'll fall down. <laughs> right? I mean, like this is in the Bible. I, I know sometimes that it can get like weird and it's okay. 
to think about the Bible and to think about some of the things that happen, it's, it can be extreme. And what I don't want to do is I don't want to ignore the content of the book and some of the nitty-gritty things that happened in it for the sake of just making a couple points, because our point is to engage the Bible. Now, we're not going to dig into, like, what happened with God's view on violence and violence in the Old Testament. That is a worthy thing, and I have put a lot of time to thinking and studying that, and there are a lot of unanswered questions that I still have. So if it makes you uncomfortable, that's okay. The Bible, you have permission to be unsettled by the things that the Bible contains. I am. But I think that the point of the Bible is that we know the God of the Bible. And if we know the God of the Bible, then we have to ask, what's the story the Bible's telling? And the story of the Bible, there's a guy named Von Roberts, and he does, uh, he kind of gives, writes a book called God's Big Picture. It's kind of like what's happening in the Bible for us to know kind of what's going on in the Old Testament and how does it make sense in the New Testament. And he says that the story of the Bible is about God's people being in God's place under God's rule and authority. And so the Old Testament is this story of over and over again, God's people being in God's place under God's rule and authority in the beginning, where all things were right. And then all hell broke loose, right? And all of a sudden, God's people were cast out from the place where they were present with him. And the whole story of the Bible is an attempt to restore the garden, to find God's people back in God's place under God's rule and authority. Now, we can balk at the idea of rule and authority. The idea is the Bible, believe it or not, doesn't have a president or like a dictator or anything like that. It has a king. And the king is Jesus. uh, And the goal is that we would be brought under the rule and authority of the one who is perfect, good, and true. And so the story of Joshua actually puts Joshua up as this archetype, a a forerunner of what the Messiah might be like when the people of God's people become present in God's place and live under God's rule, authority, and blessing. And it's only a brief picture because if you look at the book of Joshua, next we move to Judges, where right away it says, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And the people are exiled and then brought back and exiled and brought back. And holy smokes, if you read the book of Judges, like people are getting killed on toilets and stuff like that. I'm not kidding you. Like read the story of Ehud the left-hander. Like it is, it's it's crazy. The story of the Old Testament all settles on this idea of God moving us to a place in redemptive history where God's people have to say, there has to be one even greater than this. But there's this brief picture in the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua, where we see a leader take root and lead his people to be in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And so that's where we find ourselves in the story. Just a a quick, brief snapshot of what is to come. Not Snapchat, snapshot. We're not on Snapchat. But it's a quick, brief snapshot and foreshadowing of what is to come in the New Testament. So that's where we are in kind of Christian redemptive history. I don't know if you're a context person, I am. So that always helps me kind of put things into perspective as I go and approach uh, the scriptures. But what do we see about trust when we look at the story of Joshua? The first thing we see is Joshua trusted the wandering. He didn't like the desert, 
Nobody likes going and wandering what seems like aimlessly uh, in desert land for like 40 years. No one is signing up for that. Joshua didn't sign up for that. And I'm sure all of you probably aren't signing on the dotted line for that. But Joshua trusted that the wandering that he was in was purposeful. Joshua trusted that the wandering was purposeful. He trusted in the promises of God. And he actually invited the people to do the same. So even as as the people of God are getting ready to kind of cross into the area that will be the promised land, Joshua in Joshua 4 stops. And he says, hey everyone, we just went through this incredibly difficult time. And instead of saying, let's forget about the wandering and embrace what's ahead, he stops and he takes the entire people of Israel and he starts to place stones in the ground. And he tells the people of Israel, may these stones represent an altar of remembrance. A place where we've we've made a monument that says, our God who we were wandering, in large part we think because of, has brought us out. And the wandering prepared us for the moment where we now cross into the land that he promised us. You see, oftentimes I think we can so often be scared to wander. And I think part of the basis of the Christian faith is understanding that questions are a part of it. For so long, what we've invited people into, and I think in large part, a lot of the issue with the evangelical church in America has been that we invite people into indoctrination. Hey, just believe these things. Do these things. Like, just go along to get along. When some people are asking really big questions, what do people often experience? I I work with I work with college students and all the time they come to me and they say, I have this big question, but I'm afraid to ask it because if I ask it, does it really mean I follow Jesus? And I was like, I sure hope it does because Jesus asked lots of questions and I have lots of questions too. We need to be okay to wander and we need to be okay to say, my wandering is not without purpose that the places that God is taking me and sometimes the seeming lostness or hopelessness that I feel in those spaces actually might have purpose. They actually might be God giving us space to understand and know him more deeply, to enter into a different level of trust with him, to know him in a different way. You see, Joshua trusted the wandering was purposeful. He didn't go out and like the other people of Israel just say, gosh, this sucks. Can't we go back to Egypt? No, he said, for some reason, God promised that we would make it here. And we're not there yet. And I don't know what happens in between. And God, I have lots of questions. But the work that I've seen you do, I will remember. And it has compelled me so much that I can't help but follow you. We are compelled by a person, not by a set of rules. We are compelled by a person, not by a set of rules. The thing that is our North Star 
is not our Bible, it's our Savior. The Bible and its purpose is to point us to the Savior, not to give us all the answers. The Bible is a story about people who are wandering how to make sense of a world and a Savior who says, you might not have all the answers, but I'm here, I love you, and I will make a way. That is the point of the Bible. But too often we try to make it a Q&A answer manual and it becomes something that just falls short. We're left wanting. We want more. And that can be frustrating. And oftentimes it leads to people just saying, well, I'm going to walk away from the faith because it can't give me the answers and you told me it's life instruction manual. Didn't have one for what to do with a poop vacuum. Like, please tell me. So how are we making sense of life? Well, we look at this person, Joshua, who trusted that even the wandering was purposeful. You see, so many people uh, right now are entering something called deconstruction. It's where they've, they've learned something or they've been taught something, and then they go to the Bible and they experience dissonance. Like, our reality and what we actually believe or like reality and what we read uh, don't seem to be making a connection. And so we become kind of unsettled with it. And a lot of times what we've been taught is to just kind of stuff it. Don't ask about it. Like just God will make a way. And you're like, cool. Where is that way? Like I'm waiting. Won't you show me? Uh, and we over-spiritualize answers to reduce dissonance. And all it does is it increases the dissonance. It makes it even louder because the answers are insufficient. All deconstruction is, is wandering. <laughs> it's asking, might there be more to what I've been given? What we learn when we're younger is good. And, our, and, and sometimes our parents have really good intentions. A lot of times our family, we're, some of us are probably raised in, in households where we're like, man, my parents raised me and I am so thankful for what they have given me. And yet there comes a point in everybody's life where they're saying, I have to exist on my own. I have to figure this thing out. I'm going to figure out who I'm going to be, what I'm going to do. I'm going to figure out how I'm going to live. And I remember the principles that my parents gave me, but I also have to ask new questions because my, my faith is not my parents. My faith is mine. And so asking those questions, you enter into a time of wandering where you're wondering, hey, God, what did you actually mean when you said this? Might there be more to it? And all deconstruction is saying, might there be more to this? People will make it out to be this evil, corrupt thing that's like making everybody leave the faith. No, it's because people have been given insufficient answers and told just to chill out. And here, you won't be told to chill out. You won't be told that there are all these pat answers that are tried and true. What you're going to be told is, it's okay to wander here because we actually know what the North Star is. And as long as we keep our eyes on a North Star there's plenty of room to wander. Joshua trusted that the wandering was purposeful. The second thing, Joshua trusted in the people who shaped him. So notice, there is an individuality to our faith, 
but our faith does not stop at an individual level. Our faith is communal. It's always with people. Notice that there's not a point in the scriptures where our faith is like, well, I'm just going to be over here. It's just me and Jesus. Like it's always the people of God, right? In Acts, it's all about the church. When Paul writes letters and all the epistles, like they're not usually just written to like one person hanging out. But because we live in a society that is highly individualistic, a lot of what we've done is we've taken individual language and superimposed it on the Bible. And so all the things that the Bible talks about, like when Paul writes a letter and says, grace and peace in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to open up one of his letters in the New Testament, everybody's like, yes, grace and peace to me. He's writing this specifically to me. No, he's not. He's writing it to a church in a very time in a specific place. And we have to, and our job is to say, hey, God is trying to say something through the Apostle Paul. How do we make sense of it? But it's to a community of people. Your faith is always communal. And because your faith is always communal, there will be always be people who are shaping that faith. So not only did Joshua trust the wandering, he also trusted that there were people that shaped his life. There were people that shaped his life. Well, while Israel is struggling to remember, Joshua trusted Moses and Aaron who passed along the promises of God and the history of liberation. They showed him a new way forward. They said, it's worth pressing on. And Joshua said, you know what? You're right. We move forward. We are still wandering. We might not know where to go. But there are people who are wandering who said, hey, we came out of Egypt. We came out of slavery and oppression. God has led us out. And God will continue to lead us to a new place. You see, Joshua trusted in the people that shaped him. In Joshua 8, it says that Joshua came and he copied all the laws of Moses. And he presented them to the people. And he said, don't you remember? This is what we've been given. This is our North Star. The Old Testament didn't have a North Star of Jesus. They had this law. They had these tablets, these, these ways that they were supposed to guide their life and, and structure their life around in the Old Testament. Joshua came and said, look, remember the words of Moses. Remember the things that Aaron and Moses said to us, even in the midst of our 40 years. These are the words that we live by. These are the ways that we conduct our lives. Joshua trusted the people who shaped him. And in turn, he had a foundation on which to grow. It didn't say that Joshua like, just totally was like, Moses and Aaron, I'm going to do everything the same as you. Like, it's, it's not copycat. Like, he's not asking for a copycat leader. He's saying, no, there are people who have shaped us and we are given principles and foundations that we build our lives upon. And guess what? Those things don't come to us uh, like just out of thin air. They come to us by people who have shaped our lives. They've come to us through people whom we trust to speak the right things at the right times in the right ways. And they shape and form what we give our lives to. You give your life to something, not because you like hid in a corner and had a revelation. Sometimes that might happen, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's the exception, not typically the rule. Really, what usually happens is that you put yourself in a community of people 
And those people show you love and care. And you say, I want to do that. Or you say, wow, that was not what I signed up for. And it's unfortunate right now in our culture that most of the people who have been involved in the church aren't saying the first. They're saying the second. The church should be a place where it's saying, I, I experience the deep love of God's people to the point that I want to be like them. But instead, we have so many people who are saying, I don't know if I can enter a church building because I don't know if I can trust them. How do people know Jesus if they can't trust the people who follow him? Joshua trusted the people who shaped him. But might we be a people who look to the one who shapes us and invite other people to trust him as well? Third, Joshua trusted in the God who made big promises. Joshua trusted in the God who made big promises. We're going to look at Joshua 23, 14 real quick. Uh, This is at the end of Joshua's life. He is getting ready uh, to pass away. Uh, Joshua passed away at 110 years old, it says. And, uh, yeah, no biggie. Um, (laughs) And in Joshua 23, 14, he gives a word to God's people and also a warning. We're going to look at the word he gives, uh, but we're also going to take heed of the warning. It says, now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. It means he's going to die. That's a really fancy way to say that. That's next time. Anybody who is uh, trying to figure that out, maybe it's like a good bit for my obit sometime. I'm going the way of the earth. It's cool. Exactly. <laughs> you know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. He doubles down, right? And then he goes on to say, but look, and see that you find God just as trustworthy as I do. Lest you give yourself to other things and destruction comes on you. This is a foreshadowing of what happens in the book of Judges. He's saying, Joshua, Joshua is saying, hey, guys, put your faith and trust in something that really matters Look at this God. He has never failed me yet. But don't look away. Commit to him. Know him. Understand who he is. Learn about him. Lest you give yourselves to the wrong things. And then in Judges, but everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And Israel crumbles to pieces. What a foreshadowing that is of people taking their eyes off of God, right? It, it, it seems like uh, two of these things can't be true at the same time, that you can't wander and have your eyes fixed on something. But that's not true. Even in our wandering, we can fix our gaze on things that we know and hold to. And in the same way, Joshua is pointing the people of God to that truth, that there is a God who has not failed us, but that doesn't mean we haven't been incredibly disappointed. There is a God who's fulfilled all of his promises. Man, I wish it was easier. 
There is a God who has brought us into the place that seemed impossible to come to. I wish there wasn't war that had to happen for us to get there. We can wander and ask big questions and still have our eyes fixed. I think people walk away from the Christian faith because oftentimes their questions get so big that they lose the fact that Jesus might actually uh, be with them in the wandering. Why? Because they're looking for answers. They're not looking for a savior. If our eyes are fixed on Jesus, we, we can wander and ask big questions and our faith can still hold strong. Joshua, I'm sure, had all the questions, right? This book is one that literally is like, Joshua went and he conquered a thousand sons and the sun stood still and like all these people were just kind of laid waste to because Joshua believed God and his promises. Like really it's written like a really, really, really well-written war story, like mythological war story, right? That like there was no obstacle, God was with them. If you look at a lot of ancient literature, it's actually fashioned very similarly to the way that it was written, where they, they would make extreme statements decreeing uh, the greatness of the leader and the perfection of the conquest and all these different things. The book of Joshua is written that way. It's to speak to a time and place of people who were trying to understand what was going on. The goal was that people would say, wow, God did all that he said he was going to do in this book. This is a letter about how the God of Israel did what he said he was going to do. Joshua trusted in that God, the God who made big promises. He believed that God would do what he said, and that shaped his life. He put everything in that basket. Like, there's not really turning back when it's like, go walk around the city seven times. You know, like you put yourself in a pretty vulnerable spot. When it's like, hey, on cue, don't, don't fire your weapons, or you know, probably not firing anything back then, but it's like, don't throw the rocks and the spears. It's like, just blow your trumpets. Like, the eggs were all in the basket of God on this one. Like, I don't know about you guys, but like I said, reading the Bible can get weird. And it's okay to admit that. But Joshua is like, all my eggs are in God's basket right now. Like, we are fully committed like, either these trumpets blow and the walls come down, or we are toast. <laughs> Joshua shows us that what we trust changes and shapes who we are. Joshua shows us that what we trust changes and shapes who we are. Now, I want to draw a parallel for you all uh, to the New Testament, and I promise we're going to make some sense of this. We're going to look at Romans 12. This is a really popular verse uh, that most, if you've been around church spaces for a while, you know Romans 12, 1 and 2, probably like it's no one's business, like this is the Bible school memory verse of the week, like all the time. Um, but one of the things that we miss is so many times people treat Romans as just like this big book of theology, but if you actually read the book of Romans, it's a recap of the story of Israel and the story of Israel carried out with Jesus at the end. And Romans 1 through 11 is this big, uh, big story arch of God's people and where they're going. It goes through the wandering, through the falling away. It goes through uh, 
what's true of the people of God uh, over the course of that arc of the story. And then in Romans 12, it stops and he goes, therefore. And the therefore isn't just a therefore because uh, of like the previous couple verses. It's a therefore for the whole rest of the book. Like he's saying, therefore, in light of 1 through 11, here we go. And that's really important because he's saying, in light of the story of Israel and all the spiritual truths and theological truths that I've shared with you in the book of Romans, this is vital. And it's vital to trust. And here's why I say that. Because trust often comes at the expense of our conformity. Now, Romans 12.1 talks a little bit about conformity. And we're going to dig into a little bit about what it means to give our lives to something. Because I think that there's been an invitation by people to come to the church and conform in one way, when really the God of the Bible is after something totally different. It says this, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. He's reminding them of what's been said, but he's also reminding them, Look, in view of God's mercy, the story of Israel is a story of God's mercy all throughout the Old Testament. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And then he goes on to say, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, how are we going to draw these things uh, together? Sometimes uh, I'm learning, and uh, I'm taking a social psychology class right now. It is fascinating, so geek out with me for a minute. There are three types of conformity, all right? Conformity is something that we all do. Conformity isn't necessarily bad, but there are three types of conformity, and I actually think that it's really important to understand this because I think when we read this, uh, what we've interpreted this verse to mean in the church oftentimes Uh, gets mistaken for a type of conformity that it shouldn't be. The types of conformity are compliance, identification, and internalization. Compliance is, I'll do what you say, even though I don't agree. Identification is FOMO. Like, I don't want to miss out. I really like these people. I'm just going to go along. But internalization is not necessarily... uh, conformity as much as it is transformation. Internalization means that something has taken root in you, and now your thoughts, beliefs, and actions are now totally rewired to say, this is the way I'm going to live. When we look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, and we look at the idea of trust, oftentimes what has happened in the world today is people are out for compliance. We're out for cheap, you listen to me and do it quick. The problem is, is the church has done this too. Our goal is to get as many people as we can in the building and to align them to our vision, values, and methodology as quickly as humanly possible. Why? So they get on board. What we've done is we've created really, really cheap compliance, and then we wonder why people walk away. It's because nothing has changed. There's been no transformation of any kind. No, they've just said, I'm going to go along to get along. This is probably as good as I can get, and we make a value judgment as to why we might stick around. 
but the Bible isn't out for your compliance. And neither is Jesus. Jesus isn't asking you to comply. Jesus isn't even asking you to identify. He doesn't want you to just have FOMO and come along for the ride. He's saying, be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. There is something about the way that you think, the way that you believe, and the way that you act in the world that requires a total and complete trust and transformation in order for it to happen. God is not asking for your compliance. God is asking, might you let me transform you? You see, Paul is saying, what you give your life to should transform your very life. But if you're out to just make a mass following, all you're going to do is ask for compliance. And you're going to demand it, and you're going to guard people from experiencing all the questions that they have. People aren't allowed to wander if they comply. Just shut up and go along. But when you're transformed, something is different. Something about what's happening inside of you is no longer the same. And I am no longer invited just to cheap compliance. I'm invited to a change of my very life. God is after your heart. In the Bible, the idea of the heart isn't just like the touchy-feelies. The Bible is the seat and guiding force of our lives. It's the place where our thoughts, attitudes, and actions come together to create belief. And so when he invites us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, he's saying, what's happening here? Don't just do the right things. Don't just say you believe it so you belong to a group of people. But know Jesus. Know the perfect one who comes and is the perfect Savior, the one who is foreshadowed by Joshua to say, we can trust our leader. No, we can now look to Jesus and say, Jesus has come. He has shown us the way. He didn't need violence to get there. He died on the cross. He actually took all the elements of the Old Testament and the ways that they achieved God's place in God's people under God's rule and blessing, and he flipped it on its head and said, we won't do it by conquering. We'll do it by sacrifice. What if we're a church who's not known for conquering the next big group of people, but we're known as a people who long for sacrificial love sacrificial trust in the God who sent himself for us, died a gruesome death so that you might be transformed to no longer conform to just the ways in which you've always gone about life. Because there's a way in which you can go about life really mindlessly. And Paul's invitation is saying, if you trust in the God who fulfills his promises, the God who doesn't fail, you won't conform and go along to get along but your heart will be changed. You will be made new. And this God, who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus, will take up residence in you. And while you feel like you're wandering, he's still present with you. That's the invitation of the God of the Bible. So I ask you the big question. 
because we're all asking it and we always come back to it. Who or what will you give your life to? Will we be people defined by our allegiance to the one who takes us to the true promised land? Or will we allow ourselves to go along and get along, to comply, to continue a life that's just afraid of missing out and we miss the transformation that the God of the Bible is offering us through a relationship with Jesus? The story of Joshua foreshadows that there is one to come and that one to come. His promises are yes. His promises will not fail. But his promises lead us to a life of sacrifice and service to other people where we give ourselves away. Why? Because we don't conform any longer to the selfish nature of this world. We're transformed into people who have said our spiritual act of worship is our life given away to the thing that we believe and trust in most, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, uh, we love you and we thank you this morning. Would we be people who trust you? Would we ask the question, who or what do we give our lives to? And would we be honest? Because the reality is, is I find sometimes that I'm not giving my life fully and completely to you. There are so many things in this world that are pulling me in so many different directions that ask for my allegiance and my commitment. And God, yet they fail. Would you remind me that you are the God whose promises has not failed? But God, sometimes I'm disappointed. I'll be honest. But if I believe you are the God of the Bible, the one who has come in, come in the person of Jesus, not just to make me comply, but to transform my heart and life, might I see that you're a God worth following, worth the sacrifice worth knowing. Jesus, would you transform my life? Would you transform my heart? I give myself to you. And God, would that be my prayer every day? God, would I give myself to you? Jesus, we love you and we thank you. In your name, amen.